Hi everyone, my name is Steve Tudor and welcome to the Friday Show. It's the show that would like to add to the condolences and love shown this week for Frank Worthington following his sad passing on Tuesday. Halifax's footballing Elvis was one of a small number of brilliantly gifted creative spirits who in the 70s lit up drab and dark autumn afternoons and for 90 minutes would allow our fathers to forget about life's grind. His leaving us makes the sport that we love just that little bit more beige. Though maybe that's not strictly true as regards to the international scene. For those of us who were rightly criticising Gareth Southgate for not starting Phil Foden last night, consider this. Worthington, Alan Hudson, Charlie George, Rodney Marsh, Stan Bowles, Peter Osgood and Tony Curry all combined were bequeathed one less England cap than Theo Wolcott. Surely that's a cold case crime worth looking into. Ironically, it was Frank's passing that inspired this podcast today because we really wanted to try something different. There's not much mileage to be gained in talking about England's trip to Albania on Sunday and with no City game for over a week, we thought this was a good opportunity to get to know our guests a little better. So after spying a really funny Q&A with Frank in Shoot magazine back in the day, we remembered how commonplace those interviews used to be in Shoot and Matchday Mag programmes. You know the kind of thing, favourite meal, steak and chips. Favourite singer, it was always Lionel Richie. So we thought we'd create one of our own for our guests today, who are, I'm delighted to say, Ali and Chris. Hi Ali, you well pal? I'm very well thanks Steve, good to be here. I think that was my longest ever introduction. <laughs> well, outrageous. <laughs> Chris, are you, uh, did you survive that very long intro? <laughs> yeah mate, no, and it's really, uh, you know, good form mentioning Worthington. He was a... Uh, you're right. He was a unique personality and character at a period of time when they really they were few and far between. So yeah, oh, well, I think it's on. it's a great tribute to him. Well, before we get into our kind of um, Wimbledon inspired kind of in focus, as I used to call it, in shoot. Um, I guess we need to kind of just touch on last night's internationals. Um, Ali, you watched the Scotland game, is that correct? I did. Yeah, it turned out to be quite a good game too. Um, Slightly tortuous first forty-five minutes, and then yes. it all it all uh, erupted in the second half. Um, and a, a, an iconic uh, acrobatic overhead kick. <laughs> it was. I had to watch it three times. I, I, I don't know how he did it. John McGinn, of all people, John McGinn, bless him. Like, really didn't see that one coming. But uh, but yeah, it, I, I'm pretty sure I was having a lot more fun watching uh, the <laughs> yes. Scotland Austria game than any of you guys were on England San Marino, which I was actually have to say I was double screening at the same time. I had uh, I had on quietly in the other in the other corner of the room. Well, given that Austria are kind of a team you have to beat to get to finish second, uh, realistically, um, how do you feel about the draw? And also, I guess it, it it puts Scotland in a good light that they came back from behind twice, didn't it? It does. I mean, it, it, I was actually quite impressed with Scotland last night. We've got huge problems. We will, you know, this will come to light in the summer, I am sure. Um, but we don't have a centre forward, um, oh. and we don't we don't have a quite talented enough front three to to uh, play with a false nine or do the kind of thing that City does <laughs> we don't have centre forward. Uh, so, you know, that that will continue to be a problem. Uh, the fact we've scored two goals, um, including one absolutely incredible one uh, with a um, shot in the arm last night. Um, but yeah, um, Scotland is kind of in a better place than it's been for many years, I think, but it's still not quite there. Um, and yeah, I, I think, to be honest, I think this uh, World Cup qualification is going to be a struggle. Um, but we've we've lost pretty much every first qualifying game that we played for the last twenty five years. Oh, really? uh, so just to get a point out of this one is not too bad. Um, and you know we are likely to end up competing against Austria for that second spot. So um, kind of holding our own. Uh, it could be worse. Uh, it yeah. would have been a disaster to lose. Um, and particularly having gone behind twice, it was uh, ended up quite a good quite a good point. I think so. Yeah, I'm fairly happy this morning. Well, I mean, you mentioned there about kind of a lack of forwards. Um, I said the same to Howard on Wednesday about Wales, you know, over a kind of number nine right now. Um, whereas England, you know, have them in abundance. Uh, Chris, watching the predictable landslide last night, uh, England, San Marino, uh, San Marino ranked 210th in the world, the lowest of all the rankings. It's a bit of a farce, isn't it? I just... I was watching last night and I just, just what is the point? Yeah. I mean, I, I have to be honest and say that following England is probably the only real blind spot in my overview and knowledge and, and enthusiasm for, for football. 
Um, after after the 2002 World Cup, I really tuned out of England. I was so disappointed by by that team in, in that tournament. But I don't really blame England. I don't blame the FA. I, I blame FIFA. There's Categorically, you cannot justify a team like San Marino being in the same group as a team like England. And, and I don't understand why San Marino and other teams who... In, in terms of their experience, in terms of their resources, can't be in a league of their own, and then the best of those will will drop into to, to one of the groups. It, it was just it, it, I tweeted and said it's just like watching a, a, a playground bully beat yeah. upon the malnourished kid. And 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 at the beginning of the game as well, the commentators after five minutes said, "Okay, so it's, we seem to be settling into what the pattern of the game will be, which is basically the action taking place in the final third and and, and in San Marino's box." And and so the, the inevitable goals started to roll out. The key thing is though, and I know it's qualification. Um, if it was a friendly, it'd be even more reprehensible that's being played. But it is qualification, and they've got to play it. But for England, they learn nothing. They learn nothing at all from playing a team like that, and it's just it's just the points they need to move forward to to, to qualify. But the real danger is that they qualify from that group and they go into the knockout. They go into the tournament in the World Cup, and they've not they've not truly been challenged by yeah. a quality side. So yeah, I, I'm I, I'm honest, and, and I'll say that I, my interest in England has been waning for the last twenty years, and um, and the game last night did nothing to to restore any enthusiasm about it. Well, when you say that England kind of aren't learning anything from playing teams so far down in the packing order, I mean, I mean the same could be said for San Marino, couldn't it? I mean, it's not very good for their development when all their meaningful games are played against teams hundreds ahead of them in the rankings. You know, yeah. thus necessitating getting 10 men behind the ball and just playing a very defensive style of football. No, I mean, I'll, I'll say, first of all, I think uh, of the many things that uh, sport throws up, the uh, David against Goliath battle is is one of the um, one of the narratives or the stories that, that everybody always enjoys. Mm. Um, so I'm not entirely against the idea of occasionally England playing a team like San Marino. Uh, I think the problem is, particularly in Europe, there are uh, just too many teams that they just cannot compete. I mean, and it would be so much better for everyone if there was kind of two groups of, of four or five um, who played in, in kind of the B qualifiers who had to qualify for the qualifiers. Yes. qualifiers. Yeah. Um, so, you know, basically, whether it's the bottom 10 or 12 or whatever teams in Europe, um, you know, they play each other uh, and the top two or four or however you want to do it um, go up or even go into a playoff against the teams that, that are coming bottom of the groups. Um, because, you know, as, speaking of someone who uh, supports an international team that has been down in the doldrums on more occasions than I care to remember, <laughs> um, it's quite often that after three or four games of a qualifying tournament, a uh, qualifying group, you've lost too many games to ever have a chance of, of qualifying. Um, and then the remaining four, five, six, whatever games are left are just completely dead. Um, playing for ranking points seems completely pointless. So if there was a danger that if you finish down at the bottom of the group, uh, you're going to have to go into a playoff and, and lose your spot in the qualifi- qualifications for the next tournament, that would add a whole layer of peril and drama and, and competitiveness to the groups that would that would make everything much better. It would be better for the, the teams down there. You know, if Gibraltar and Andorra and the Faroe Islands and uh, San Marino were, were playing each other, um, they will raise their level. They'll be having more competitive games themselves. And it really would be better for absolutely everyone. And I just do not understand why people wouldn't bite the bullet and, and go that way. But the problem is, is what you've just said and what Chris just said is common sense. And that's, <laughs> yeah. that's anathema to, to, to FIFA. Yep. So it's never going to happen. And yet it really should. It's, it was a farce. Um, although I did predict 5 nil, so I was quite pleased with that. But <laughs> Right, let's move on to the Q&A. Um, yeah, I, I've kind of tried to keep it as kind of... Um, kind of close as I could to the old-fashioned kind of, you know, favourite meals, etc. But, of course, I've had to adapt it because we're not footballers, sadly. In our heads, we are. But in reality, we're not <laughs> professional footballers. So, Chris, do you want to start? If you weren't a City fan, who would you support? You know, I spent an inordinate amount of time thinking about this. <laughs> <laughs> because, and, and it's the only question where I literally... Cannot say because I couldn't formulate a reason why. But so so the answer I give is, 
If I had to choose one, I think I'd probably choose a league rather than a particular team to really follow. And it probably would be the Italian Serie A. Because right, yeah. um, during the 80s and 90s, I'd followed Italian football with the Football Italia on Channel 4, James Richardson. So I, I, I really invested and in, in, you know built a knowledge about um, the teams during that period of the late 80s and, th- and through into the 90s. You know, and I was really fond of teams like AC Milan and Fiorentina and Parma and 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 Lazio. So I'd say rather than picking another team, because I just can't imagine you know doing that. I think it'd be more a case of if, where I focus my attention would be on the Italian league, because that, that's I mean, it's the Italian league is slightly different now to why it was a couple of decades yes. ago. But yeah, it's probably that league is the one that really interests me, and that's and also at that time I was I was into it. They had such a plethora of incredible players, you know, who, who we could only dream of coming to a, 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 the Premier League. And of course, now the situation is very different. Most most a lot of international players will come to the Premier League before they come to the Italian league. So yeah, so rather than a team, I'd say a league. I'd go for the Italian league. Well, what you said there about the kind of the Italian league being so strong back in the day, I remember um, Gabby Logan interviewing Christian Vieri. Um, it must have been, I can't remember, sometime in the 90s. And she asked, would you come to the Premier League? And he laughed and said, maybe when my powers are waning. You know, <laughs> that's how they viewed us back then. I mean, how, how it's all turned. Um, Ali, if, if you weren't a blue, um, United, Liverpool? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's kind of quite easy for me because I'm, I'm an immigrant to Manchester. I moved here. Uh, and I grew up in Perth and I'm a St. Johnston fan and I continue right. to be a St. Johnston fan and I would continue to be a St. Johnston fan whether or not City were in my life. Um, but, you know, I, I became a City fan uh, very, really quite simple. Uh, I moved to Manchester in 1992 uh, and the first place I lived was kind of round Russia on my side um, and, I'd, and Main Road was just there and I started going to a few games. Yeah. Um, had I not moved to Manchester, you're going to hate me for admitting to this, but I grew up in the 1970s, 1980s. Um, my dad has got family from Liverpool. Right. And so when those uh, European Cup finals were going on, I sort of declared myself a Liverpool fan in England um, at age 10. Um, and I would have probably quite half-heartedly and unenthusiastically gone to... <laughs> Uh, vaguely raise a, uh, raise a cheer or a, a clap for Liverpool um, had had I never moved to Manchester. Uh, but that feels like a very kind of uh, wildly alternative uh, universe to me now. So well, you know <laughs> please what, Ali, don't hold that against me. I was thinking about this very same thing the other day, funny enough. I was listening to a, another Night Three Twenty part with Joe um, and he was asking kind of Asan and... and um, uh, Andrew about kind of you know how they got into sport and city and I was just thinking back to myself and I thought would I be embarrassed to admit on the pod that really I wasn't a proper city fan until I was about 10 before then I was kind of QPR liked I liked Crystal Palace because I had a kit um, I, my dad used to take me to Trafford he used to, I used to want us United to win because I was with my dad you know and um, and I used to go to Main Road with my brother, so I kind of supported almost football. Well, I didn't, never supported United, but kind of liked three or four teams around then. Um, maybe, I don't know how common that is. Uh, if people let us know on Twitter if, if how early you got into City, because I don't think it's right across the board where everyone is just a City fan from the age of three onwards, or they had City bibs <laughs> and all the rest of it. But. I think it's I think it's quite common, Stu. When, when I was a kid, I used to alternate. I'd go to Main Road one week and and... Old Trafford the yeah, other week, and yeah. and and because it was like a quid to get in, and and, and it was and it was also you decided at the last moment. You say, should we go swimming? Should we go into town? No, we'll go to the match, and then yeah. so you could go. So you know, but I think my family were always Blues, but the turning point for me was probably the eighty one Cup final, and that yes. was so that was so emotionally kind of like wrecking for me that you know that, that that's you know i was so destroyed by the by the by the replay that actually my allegiance then was just that was it it was set in stone and it, and, I, and so, so i'd found an emotional point to to identify with one particular team um and so yeah so it was just sitting but i used to go to both but once after 81 i stopped going to old trafford Chris, I love that. I love that it was a defeat that actually oh, God, made yeah. <laughs> How city yeah. is that? No, it was. It was no, no, but but it was great because it was just. I mean, it's something about personality as well. I've always, I've always related to the underdog. I've always re- related to the person yes, who has the challenge and and overcomes that challenge. And from that point on, it was just. It felt like and there was also something as well that, that really stayed with me. 
um, as a football fan is as much as I, as much as it broke my heart, I couldn't deny the brilliance of Ricky Villa's goal. Yeah. You know, and it was it was undeniable there. So yeah, it was a real it was a real kind of defining moment for me watching that game in terms of the club I supported, but also my appreciation of an opponent as well. Well, I my original answer was West Ham, but thinking you know this subject now, yeah, it might well have been Crystal Palace. I I liked Crystal Palace, you know, when they were the team of the eighties. So we're talking about when I was about five or six, and I had the kit. But West Ham, for me, I think, because I, I've always loved the kit. In the early 2000s, I loved that team of Cole, Carrick, De Canio, Canute. The fact that they got relegated, which is very City. Um, I'd probably be put off by the whole, you know, God bless the Queen, ma'am, and we won the World <laughs> Cup kind of stuff. It's a very Cockney club. But mm. I've got a lot of time for the fan base. I always wanted to do well. So I might have turned out to be a hammer if Manchester City didn't exist, which is... Um, <laughs> uh, Ali, who's your favourite ever City player? I gave this a lot of thought last night, and it's so hard because you know, I've got favourite players of different eras, and obviously I'm a, I'm a fairly newly arrived City fan compared to some. Um, but you, 30 uh, years, I, mate, it's not you. I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, that, that's about 40 years less than the average for a City fan, <laughs> well, we all know. Um, the, but uh, I, I, I give it a lot of thought and hard thought, and there's a lot of obvious candidates, but I'm going to go with one which probably doesn't get... Uh, named enough in answer to this question. Um, I think in decades from now, when people come back to write the history of of Manchester City in the uh, early 21st century, uh, the standout player will be Kevin De Bruyne. And when I was thinking about it, I'm thinking how many times have I... uh, you know, sat at the Etihad or sat in front of my telly watching a City game, and I have just been made to gasp in hmm. sheer wonder and pleasure by a moment of sheer genius. And it has been Kevin again and again and again. So while, you know, with all due respect to Yaya and David Silva and Kinky and all this SWP, all the players I could name, I really think now, uh, and we don't appreciate it because it's happening right in front of our eyes as we speak, um, Kevin De Bruyne is just phenomenal and I will, I think I will continue to worship him for as long as I live. Great answer. Uh, Chris, yourself? I'm a bit like Ali. There's too many players to I, that I can identify as just one particular favourite. But and I look at players more about what they symbolise and also how they symbolise a particular era of the club. And I'm, so I'm going, I'm going to go back a bit further. And Joe, Joe, Royal, Joe Royal's time at the club was so significant. And many yeah. people have said in the past that Joe Royal restored our pride, and I think that's a nonsense because we were always proud. But what he restored was our dignity. And and yeah. for me, no player best represents his time at the club, uh, 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 Joe Rawls' time at the club as, as Sean Gota. And I and I associate Gota much more with Joe Rawls' era than I do with Keegan's. I know a lot of people associate Gota with Keegan's era when we won that the uh, the uh, Division One Championship. And also, you know, Gota's held in high esteem, but people have short memories, right? Because when Gota joined us, we were battling against relegation uh, to, to go, you know, against going down to the third tier, and fans were very skeptical of his, of his ability, and, and that included me as well. Because in the first few games he played, I just thought this guy's a pub player. He's got, uh, he's not got a touch, he's not got pace, he hasn't got anything. And like all underdogs, he he proved us wrong. Every single fan in the stadium, he proved wrong. So like in the ninety eight, ninety nine. Um, Season, he was our top scorer, 21 goals. And in 1999-2000, we got promoted to the Premier League. Again, he was our top scorer with 29 goals. And then he faced the challenge of one chop and way coming in. He overcame that. Yes, he faced yes. the challenge of an elk coming in under, under Keegan. And he overcame that. He never, ever stopped being committed to the cause. And he was just... There are players at City that are liked and admired. And then there are players that are loved, and there's a difference. And and you've got players like Company and Zabaleta and Sean Wright Phillips. And top of all those, in terms of players that are loved, for me, it's, it's Sean Gota. He represented something at the time that the club needed. And also, he battled against adversity, and he never stopped being committed to the cause. So, yeah, I have a, I have a kind of a really big space in my heart for Sean Gota. That, that was two fantastic answers. Um, mine isn't going to compete, but I've gone for Lakey. Um, I just think it's beholden on us to tell people about him. Club captain, age 21, played in nine different positions at the age of 21. Um, he just had a double dose of natural ability. It was just clear. You know, even I, I was 14, I think, when I first saw him. You're learning about the game at the age of 14. You don't know it all by any stretch. And yet, some things are just 
clear as day, aren't they? And you watched him at that age and thought, oh, he's different. You know, he's just a different class altogether from everyone else on that pitch. Um, I think the cruelest misfortune to ever strike England um, was what happened to Paul Lake and to Gaza. Because that midfield for a decade, oh boy. I mean, I'm Welsh. I would have supported England. (laughs) That was unbelievable. Um, Okay, what about, Ali, your favourite ever non-City player? This is hard because there's so many of them. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, same here. And I, I was trying to think, obviously, you know, there are the greatest players, the Maradonas and the Pellies and, you know, those kind of, and we, we can take all of those as red. But from a purely personal perspective, a, a player who I began to kind of fall a little bit in love with in a uh, sexual man crush when hmm. I was about 17 uh, was Pat Nevin. Um, oh, great answer. Absolutely excelled when he was a kid at the uh, World Under-18 World Cup in Mexico in about 1979 or something. Uh, and kind of, I only followed that through newspaper reports. It wasn't actually shown in the telly, but I kind of kept an eye on his kid forevermore. Um, and he not only became what the, you know, the, 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 the go-to adjective is mercurial. He was a phenomenal <laughs> player to watch on the pitch. Um, little bits of David Silva about him at times, the way he could just use his, uh, miniature stature and his low centre of balance uh, to create space and just do things with the ball at his feet that you can really expect of normal mortals. Um, but on top of that, uh, despite the fact he never played for a club I supported at any stage, um, I never saw him play live, uh, which is a great disappointment. I never got to a Scotland game that he played at. And, and obviously, uh, all the time I was going to football, he was down in England when I was up in Scotland. Um, uh, but uh, just... Uh, everything throughout his entire career, before and after the game, um, he's got a uh, great attitude, great sense of humour, incredibly intelligent. He's got really good politics, and he's got amazing taste in music. And if there was one person in football that I would really love to go for a pint with sometime and just have a good natter with, <laughs> there'd be Pat Nevin. He just seems an absolutely top bloke, so he's, he's my pick. Great shout, Chris. Yourself. Just to, yeah, Ali, Nevin's a great shout. He's he's such a fascinating pundit, and I think the reference to Silver is a valid one because uh, ne- Nevin is a, was a huge advocate of David Silver because he saw a bit of himself yeah. in there. So yeah, ne- Nevin's a great guy. So I've actually got two. I'll keep it brief. One one the Premier League and one outside. I'm going to get pelters for this, <laughs> and right. But one of my favourite non-city players was Cantona. No, and, fair enough. And, no. and do you know, no. and, and I and I hated him. Yeah. Because he played for United, right? And I hated him because I could acknowledge his his extraordinary talent, and and his genius lay in the fact that he was so good at football. It was so easy for him that he chose to leave it when he just couldn't be bothered anymore. It was almost like it's like classic genius. People say what's a genius, and I always say that a genius is is when someone is so good at something they almost have contempt for it. They're able to walk. <laughs> they're able to. You know what I mean? It's, if you, you know, if you you look at genius, the geniuses in, in you know in, in sport, in in art, in literature, right? You know, is is they're able to walk away from it because they don't see it as the most important thing in their life. So, and Cantona, he just he just delivered a big game player all the time. But also, again, it's that thing I said to you before, even though I detested him, I could acknowledge the guy's, you know, otherworldliness. And then another player that I really, it, there was a period of time in the late 80s, it's when I went to uni to be a student, and I'd really sort of withdrawn from football. Going, going to Main Road in the mid to late 80s was not a particularly enjoyable time. You know, the football wasn't great, but also the conditions were, were shitty mm. and fans treated like crap. So I went to, I went to uni and... And then the 1990 World Cup happened and that was the whole sort of rebirth of football and Gascoigne and just before the birth of the Premier League. But there was a, there was a little Italian player called Toto Scalacci. Oh, God, yes. And, and, and he was this player from, he, he came up from Serie B uh, and, and he was just, there was nothing like him. Because the Italian side, they were quite an elegant side, and he had he had, he had like these the eyes of an assassin, and he had this short hair, and he was this little um, diminutive guy, and he was tenacious and skillful. But the main thing he was, he was a natural goal scorer, and he he just got me excited again about football when I saw him and again. Of course, then with the with the, with the advent of the Premier League, things changed. So yeah, so Cantonar and, and Scalacci. Uh, probably the ones that I really have a soft spot for. What, what kind of fascinates me is eight years earlier we had Paolo Rossi, the Italians, and I know that mm. Rossi played for Juve and he, he was a class of Boscalacci, but it, the, the tale as regards to the scandal that preceded the World Cup for Rossi, 
you've got two players really who the Italian public didn't want to play, <laughs> and then suddenly they just scored and scored and scored in World Cups. Um, it became their thing. It was quite odd that it's happened to the same country twice. I've gone for another World Cup legend. I've gone for Socrates. Uh, I was mm-hmm. fascinated by him as oh, a kid. Yeah. I'm really fascinated by him now uh, with his headband and his that beard. Political activist, qualified doctor. Um, one of the rare players who plays at his full height. Um, I can only think, actually, I was trying to think earlier of any others. Michael Carrick, maybe? Kind of players who play with a straight back. Is very rare in football. And he was six foot three and a half, Socrates. So he just looked like a colossus to my kind of child's eyes. Um, that goal against Italy in 82, when the chalk puffs up, just iconic for me. Um, so I, I loved the man. Um, I've written about him extensively. I, I basically, anytime there's a pitch where someone says, you know, do you want to write anything retro? I, my first one is Socrates. Because <laughs> it's a pleasure to write about him. You know, I love the guy. Um, Wasn't he a sp- Was he a smoker, Steve? He was, yes. Another yeah. reason why I... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the, the audacity of a player yes. of that level smoking 40 cigarettes. A Right, well, flipping the coin somewhat, Ali, who is the most overrated footballer of your lifetime? This was a really mean question. <laughs> I felt bad, whatever I said. Um, uh, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm just gonna bite the bullet and say it. And it's nothing to do with him as a guy, and and there's a, there's a redemption story going on, and and uh, nothing about him personally at all. Top, uh, proper decent bloke, but as a footballer, purely as a footballer, Tony Adams. Right. Uh, okay. Uh, just it, it. He was very, very effective at what he did, but he was the kind of centre back that I'd never particularly enjoyed watching. Mm. And with the whole, I guess, the whole England Scotland thing going on, he was so hyped up as like <laughs> this captain and this towering figure. And I just like every defence he ever played in was just somehow really boring. And and it kind of uh, yeah, uh, he. I, I pegged him as a donkey when he was a kid, and I never managed to shake that. And and for all the accolades he picked up later in his career, um, never really bought it. Um, I fully accept, though, that I was uh, not living in England for most of the time he was playing, and I didn't see as much of him as I should. So it's probably a deeply prejudiced and unfair opinion, but I'm sticking to it because you asked. Absolutely, well, that Arsenal one nil, you know, one nil to the Arsenal. Exactly, yeah. Just- but defending by taking one step forward and lifting your arm in the air. It's like, nah, <laughs> yes. come on. I, I, I hope it's true about the um, George Graham technique of, of tying a rope around the back of <laughs> <No>. and training. <laughs> I really want that to be true. Um, Chris, who's your most overrated player? Right, well, Ali, I'll see you, Adams, and I'll go. I'll one-up you on that. So this uh, this is controversial, but it's, an, it's, an, it's, a, it's a thought I've had for quite a long time. <laughs> I think one of the most overrated footballers is Alan Shearer. Whoa! Wait me out, Chris. Chris, when even when even a Scot reacts like that. (laughs) Okay. Hear me out. Hear me out. So, Alan Shearer, incredible goal scorer. Okay, highest highest scorer in the Premier League. Right. That will never be. I doubt that record will ever be matched, Mm. let alone beaten question I have is for a footballer of such unique talents and 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 is peerless in that respect what did he win yeah but he, that's because he turned down United twice no no <laughs> yeah but yeah yeah I'm looking at perspective and not prejudice so he won <laughs> he he won one medal right now I know that winning medals does not equate to talent okay all you got to do is look at Phil Jones but I think <laughs> I think that he had an unfulfilled career in a sense that if you are that good, you have got to win things. I I think it's unforgivable that if you are that good that you don't win things. All right. So he, he, I know he he moved to Newcastle at a time at which Newcastle were, you know, they felt like they were on the up. They just missed out on the league against United in in uh, ninety five, ninety six, and you felt like Newcastle were going somewhere. But he went there, and effectively he was like a big fish in a little pond. So the question, and, and and the longer he stayed. I'd say, where's the challenge? It reminds me of Neymar at PSG. Where's the challenge? What What is the motivation? Now, people might say, look, he wanted to go to his hometown. He wanted to try to make Newcastle better. But I would also say that part of that was he knew that how he would be treated there. He knew that he, you know, he'd be iconized, he'd be treated like a god. Alan Shearer, with that record, he should have as many medals as Ryan Giggs. And mm. he's got one. And so in terms of fulfilling his... 
he fulfilled his talent, but I don't think he fulfilled. I don't think he came anywhere nearing to fu- to fulfilling his his achievements of what he could have achieved. And so, in that respect, not not as a striker, I think you can't overrate um, Shio as a striker. He was one of the best I've ever seen. But in terms of a footballer and his impact and influence on the game, I think he's overrated. And I know a lot of people don't agree with me. But if I if I'm one of the best strikers in the world, let alone the Premier League. I should have a tr- I should have you know a medal hall that weighs down a shelf in in my spare room and he's got and he's got one and I don't and I think for a player of that caliber I I I, I think it's an unfulfilled career. Well, I'm a persuasive argument. Do you feel the same way about Matt Letizia? Stay there, yeah. Southampton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I just Letizia, like exquisite player, but lazy. Yeah. Like he 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 stayed there through a whole raft of Southampton managers who ca- who came and went, and throughout he knew that if it, he would have the final say, he's not the only one. There's lots of players like that. Letizia had, had a unique talent, but just just lazy. I may, hey, maybe he didn't want it enough. Maybe he wasn't interested in medals. He just wanted to play football and then, and, and then retire. But there's an awful lot to say about footballers now, and, <laughs> yeah. I, 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 and I would say the same thing about him. It's like, yeah, you're good. But surely with that talent, you need to fulfil it properly. Well, I've gone through a controversial one too. Um, of all the things I've written about football through my job, and I've had some flack at times, but a lot of times it's down to tribalism. So I'll, I'll write something about Liverpool and I'll get Liverpool fans in my DMs just basically hurling abuse at me. I have never before got so much abuse on a purely footballing level, i.e. just people disagreeing with something that I've written about football because I once wrote that the most overrated football in my lifetime was Figo. I've, I've hardly seen him play a good game. I, I Maybe, I, I'm, I'm happy to admit that maybe I'm just unfortunate in that the, whatever, 50 times I've watched him play have been the only 50 times he's been distinctly <laughs> average. But I, I've never got it with Figo. I didn't. Really, ever, and I've, I've even looked at his kind of YouTube clips of best goals and all of it, and go, yeah, he's up there. Of course, he's, he's a very good footballer, but why he was put up to that level, I don't get. I, I've never understood it. So, Figo for me. You know what's actually? I don't know, man. Because Figo was a lovely player, but but yeah, I guess in terms of Figo was a, was consistent. Yeah. So, but but I guess in terms of impact, I don't know. Was he a game changer? I, I do think that his status was elevated when he moved to Madrid, and it was it was the move from Barca to Madrid that exactly. showed he had some real cojones about yeah. him. But yeah. also, yeah. he he was he was shoehorned into that squad of Galactico, which probably over enhanced his 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 ability a little bit, but. Yeah, actually, no. It's it's not about think about it. It's not a bad shout out, actually. But he's still a quality player. But like yeah. you say, is he in that upper echelon of world class players? I think one of the problems with this conversation is always when you're talking about which players are the most overrated. Um, in order to be overrated, someone has to be really quite highly. Rated. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so, yes. so all of these players we're picking out are actually really incredibly good players. Well, uh, and extent. we're talking about the media hype and, and the commentators more exactly. than the actual player themselves. It's a bit unfair on the footballers. To, to extend on what Chris said earlier, that's why none of us have said Phil Jones. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> 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 um, guys, do you want to do the most memorable match or do you want to drop it with time considerations? Um, I only ask because... Well, do you have a memorable match that is perhaps surprising? Because the ones I could think of were pretty obvious. QPR, obviously, 5-1 against United back in 89 for me in the 6-1 Old Trafford. Um, and as a Welsh fan, it's Wales Belgium in the 2016 Euros. Um, Ali, is, is there any kind of surprises in there in your choices? Uh, well, it depends how closely you've been paying attention, but my choice was not a City match or a Scotland match, but St. Johnson winning the Scottish Cup in 2014. <laughs> uh, and it was the one I was there for, um, and, and uh, it was the one I never saw coming. So I'm happy to talk about Brilliant. it equally, but more than happy to not talk about it if you want to make time. I, I've forgotten that they won that. I, I, I can recall that, yeah. Uh, Chris, what about you? What was your uh, most memorable Yeah, match? well, mine's a little bit predictable, but it was a semi-final against United in the FA Cup in 2011, yeah. and and it was just because it was it was it was it was more than a derby. It was us saying 
get out of our way. (laughs) And and, and it was a confirmation that we'd begun our journey and it was deeply emotional for me at that point. Uh, But yeah, that's, I mean, I wasn't there to watch it on TV, but yeah, that's that's the one for me, so. Okay, um, looking at you personally, kind of straying away from the, um, the fandom, as it were, Ali, what's your biggest sporting achievement? I'm probably going to surprise you here. Uh, when I was a kid and and uh, until I was about 22, 23, my sport was not football. It was trampolining. Right. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, it, at, at quite high level, um, probably uh, biggest sporting achievement, uh, 1988 in Paris, the World Trampoline Championships. Uh, what the holy the shit? Finals. What? <laughs> <laughs> Got through at the final in uh, in the men's synchronized team uh, competition uh, and finished seventh um, in a in a one of those huge big arenas with about ten thousand people in it and all the spotlights on and stuff, uh, which is all very exciting. Um, so yeah, I've got I've got a lot of trampoline stories, but uh, it feels like ancient history now. But yeah, that that's a fairly good claim. I guess that's amazing. That's that's why we <laughs> we're doing what we're doing today. I would never know that. Um, do you do, do, sorry? Do you still do trampoline at all now, Ali? No, I don't. Um, I, I mean, to be honest, one of the uh, one of the reasons it all stopped is I got to about twenty two, having got through my student years, and and my life was stretching out ahead of me. Um, and I wanted to to go out and party and go to football matches and and do other things that were much less fun. So I left. Uh, you know, I, I left it all behind. Um, and it wasn't until my uh, kids were starting to to go out and do activities. Uh, and one of them in particular got really into gymnastics and doing a bit of that stuff. It kind of, I started to miss it. Uh, I'm wondering if I should go back to doing a bit of coaching and all the rest of it. But mm. uh, no, I'd, I'd very happily entirely written it out of my life for about 30 years. Uh, and then I, I, I took the kids to uh, uh, one of those trampoline parks that are now very fashionable um, a couple of years ago. Uh, and I was still... Uh, even with my creaking old bones, I was competent, <laughs> still I was competent enough. To, I still had it to, to scare the shit out of the staff at the uh, Trampoline <laughs> Park in Salford, which I was quite proud of. <laughs> Chris, top that, mate. Sorry. <laughs> uh, I don't think so. I'll try. So um, I played semi-pro football in Africa for two years. Right. So, wow. <laughs> so when I was in my, uh, what was it, 27, um, I, I lived in Botswana in Africa for a couple of years. And uh, and by semi pro, I mean it was a low bar, trust me. But they had a, but they had a league, and uh, the vill- I lived in a, a village called um, uh, I can't remember it's called like the village. Uh, it's it can't, it's it's um, it's uh, oh, I can't remember the name of the village that I lived in, but I'll have to come back to it. But yeah, they had a village team, and um, uh, I was in a bar, and, and I had a city top on, and a guy came up to me with a United top on, um, and uh, he was the manager of the football team, and he said, "Do you want to come and trial it?" And he'd never even seen me play, but I managed to get into the team, and they'd never had a white player before in the team, so it was right. quite a sort of big thing. Yeah, so for a season and a half, uh, so. Suroi was the name of the uh, of the village that I lived in, and the team I played for was Mafatsu FC. And <laughs> yeah, season and a half playing there, so I fulfilled my dream of playing semi pro football, but I had to go to Africa to to to, to do it. Uh, two amazing answers, and both very much at left field and very unexpected. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, mine is I came fourth in a national poker tournament. Uh, I used to play poker a lot, and. So I came forth in this kind of big event. Um, There's about 200 players there, national tournament. Uh, you have to qualify through regionals and all the rest at first and then made it to the nationals and then came forth. Um, funny enough, it was on the same day as the 4-4 at Old Trafford, United uh, Everton. Um, oh, so that was 2012, wasn't it? Um, so yeah, I used to play a lot of poker, a lot of poker. And, and even now, if I'm kind of short of a bit of money, I'll play a bit of online poker, make some money and then kind of close the account again because... Uh, I've lost my love of the game now, but it's um, I'm not bad. I'm all right. Just uh, but at one stage, I was obsessed with poker. Really was read all the books and and all the rest of it. Um, okay, uh, Ali, your biggest disappointment as a fan? Uh, I was uh, Scottish and eleven years old in the summer of 1978. Uh, at eleven years old, I entirely bought into the Ali McLeod uh, myth building of the Scottish <laughs> World Cup Challenge. <laughs> 
Uh, I went out and bought Ali's Tartan Army by uh, Andy Cameron and not only learned all the words of Ali's Tartan Army, I learned all the words of the B-side. I want to be a punk rocker, but my mammy won't let me. Oh, uh, and I, I, I watched the parade that the team had when they were leaving to go off their victory parade that they had on the way to the airport. Um, and then Peru and then Iran. Uh, and by the time we got to Holland and actually showing what the team was capable of, mm. uh, it had been the biggest disappointment that any 11-year-old should ever have to live with. And it's well-trodden territory and an obvious answer, but there you go. Well, yeah, I've been there myself as a Wales fan. It, it absolutely sucks. <laughs> it really, yeah. uh, Chris, your, your biggest uh, kind of letdown as a fan? Well, I mentioned the 8-2-1 Cup final, but there's a more recent one as well, and, and that was going out to Hamburg in the UEFA Cup in 2009, um, that second leg, again, and it was the atmosphere in the stadium mm. was, there was there's, it's not been repeated. I mean, you know, the nearest that came to it was like after Sergio's goal in 2012 and possibly when we beat Liverpool in January 2019. But the atmosphere was extraordinary. And I remember it was it was a game where a company was playing in midfield and I really started to see these leadership qualities. And Casado scored a goal. and But then, to, then just to go out on the away goals as we did. And it was the first game that I took my son to. Oh, and, no. And it was just... I mean, I mean he, he was, he'd never anything like it, the atmosphere. But it took us days as a family to, to, to get over it. Mm. It was just... I think it was because it was, it was so emotional emotional and it always it was like a taste of where we might be going forward to but yeah it, of all the games in the last 10 15 years it's that one that one absolutely kicked seven colors out of me because it was so devastating um, but yeah and 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 the the eight to one final was the one which triggered everything so yes yeah. those two probably um i go back to 91 i think it was 91 uh paul bowden missing a penalty against romania to qualify that would have been our kind of first major tournament for many years for wales but since 58 um and it really felt like it was going to happen that night and it didn't so uh and also raheem sterling of course against tottenham in the champions league um and i'll never get over that it's just so, so <laughs> i mean i'm not even exaggerating when i say a little part of me died that 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 night, it was just some part, some love for football just went and yep. left me, and it's never come back. It's, um, oh. anyway, um, Ali, most famous person you've met? Uh, for my sins, I did about 10 years as a music, arts, and culture journalist, so I did a lot of the interviews with pop stars, and right? Film stars, and they, so all of whom were uh, exceptionally boring, with very, very few exceptions. Uh, so I'll give you a slightly football themed one, uh. Harking back to earlier answer, when I was uh, part of the Scottish trampoline team, uh, we did uh, uh, some kind of charity sport for all type thing up in Aberdeen in the mid eighties, and uh, we were doing a demonstration display routine thing, um, and we got shuffled into a changing room, a makeshift changing room in a kind of store cupboard, uh, and there, half dressed when we came into the room, was Jim Layton. So at that time, uh, was not only a Scottish national goalkeeper, he was, uh, you know, he just won back-to-back titles with Aberdeen, which was just a phenomenal achievement. Um, he, they'd won four Scottish Cups, they'd won the European Cup Winners' Cup. He was up just about to go with Alex Ferguson down to United um, and as one of the most sought-after goalkeepers in the world. Um, so, you know, he was a megastar. Uh, I walked into this uh, warehouse changing room thing with my coach, a lovely bloke called Pete Marshall, uh, who uh, knew everything about trampolining and absolutely nothing about football. Uh, so I, I clocked so that Jim Layton was standing there in his pants. <laughs> and, uh, I kind of uh, smiled out and said, hello. Uh, and he held out a hand and said, hi, I'm Jim. And I shook his hand and said, hi, I'm Ali. Uh, meanwhile, Pete, my coach behind me, uh, offered his hand, said, hi, I'm Pete. So what do you do then? Oh, <laughs> Jim, uh, I just kind of shuffled a bit. I know. <laughs> he kind of shuffled in his, his voice a bit and said, uh, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm here to do a kind of uh, beat the goalie type thing, <laughs> I think. Uh, and, and Pete says, oh, so you're a goalkeeper, are you? Oh. Said, yeah, at which point I was kind of dragging him away and, and mouthing the words, that's Jim Layton! <laughs> and he was marking, ooh! Uh, 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 anyway, I, I took great pleasure in explaining what he had done 10 minutes later when poor Jim Layton <laughs> had put his pants on and, and left us in peace. Uh, so there you go, there's a good one. 
Well, very quickly before we move on to, to you, Chris, I'm, I'm just reminded um, of meeting a goalkeeper myself. Uh, I was 11. Mike Hooper was playing for Wrexham. Okay. And in the papers, it was all about how he was joining Liverpool. And I was a wannabe journalist. You know, I wanted to write. That's all I ever wanted to do. So I was at this kind of club tour thing from my local team I played for. And we were going around Wrexham, get the tour of the ground. Mike Hooper walks in. And I say, Mike, is it true what they're saying that you're joining Liverpool? He very patronisingly ruffled my hair and said, don't believe everything you read in the papers, son. <laughs> then, and I'm not kidding, the next day, <laughs> signed for Liverpool. <laughs> oh, never forgiving him. It's left me cynical ever since. <laughs> um, Chris, who's the most famous person you've ever met? So I've met I've met him of a yeah I have met him but of a fashion it's not, it's an odd story so yeah the most famous person I've ever met is Muhammad Ali oh what? now let me tell you it's not as glamorous as it sounds in the early nineties there was this bar being opened in Manchester called Hooters it was one of those bars where the where oh, the God. barmaids are, yes. are not yeah. you know. Very dubious establishment. I've heard of such establishments. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. A friend of yours knows it. And um, and 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 there was this rumor going around that Muhammad Ali, obviously, it wasn't it wasn't uh, competing anymore. He was do- he was making quite a lot of money from doing personal appearances and opening things and stuff. And, and there was this rumor that he was opening the Hooters bar, which which part of me just thought I don't want to believe that, but another part of me thought, oh God, this this person is in Manchester. This is extraordinary. I used to work at the Corner House Cinema, which is an art house cinema in Manchester, and, op- and opposite was this palace, was the Palace Hotel. I finish a shift and I go on to get a bus, and as I'm stood by the bus stop, there's there's a there's like a number of bodyguards come out and a, and a limo pulls up, and then this really tall guy with a shell suit walks out. And it's Muhammad Ali, and 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 he's got the presence of, a, and I'm not I'm not exaggerating the presence of a Messiah mm. in that yeah. as he walked out. So I just thought I've got to walk towards him, and as I walked towards him, there was just bodyguards near him, and I just said Muhammad, and he looked up and looked me in the eye, and and his and his the look in his eyes sort of said hello, yeah, and then literally within a split second he was surrounded by people, like just just. All members of public went flying towards him just just to get close to him to, to touch him. I thought, I don't want to be part of that. Like if if I want to meet Muhammad Ali, I want to have a sit down and have a coffee with him. <laughs> so so I just said, okay, for me that's enough. I said his name. He looked at me. He acknowledged me, and the bus was there. So I went to get on the bus, and as I got on the bus, I said to people, everyone, Muhammad Ali stood over there, and they all sort of turned and, and the and, then, and the bus. I, I literally thought the bus was going to keel over because. Everyone went towards the window, and I paid my fare and I got on and drove off. And I just thought, "What? What have you? You've just walked. You just got on a bus when Muhammad Ali is in the street." I just thought, "No, it, it it's enough for me." I saw him. He acknowledged my presence, yeah. and I thought, "Right, in my own sweet way, I've met Muhammad Ali." So yeah, he's <laughs> the most famous person I've been in that close vicinity of. Fantastic. Um, well, yeah, I've, I've interviewed. I've been lucky enough to interview quite a lot players um and you know if other kind of lines of work as well i've interviewed people like victoria corin and charlotte church and, and all the rest of it um but they're all you know if interviews it, it feels different you know it's not so much that you're meeting them you're you've got a job to do but um there was one time with ian brown where he played at um buckley tivoli which is just down the road from me and um i used to adore the stone roses and mm. so we went uh but kind of uh, behind the venue at the end and he came out he was getting into his kind of car and every, he was high-fiving everyone as he was coming out and he just grazed my fingertips and I was <laughs> absolutely levered I mean I was so drunk that night and I just thought no you need to know how much you mean to me <laughs> so I thought I genuinely thought that I just tapped him on the back just kind of like Ian <laughs> and, and he squared up to me and I, even in my drunken kind of haze, it's like, this doesn't feel right. What, what? Um, and then someone grabbed him and put him in the car and he, he drove off. And then we went to the chippy and my mate said, you know, you just punched your hero, don't you? And I said, I didn't punch him. I tapped him on the back. He went, no, no, you actually, you had your, your fist close. You, you punched him on the back. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I've put, and he's anything but a hero now, Ian Brown. Sadly, he's let himself uh, go somewhat. It's a terrible shame, isn't it? It is. But I think, yeah, but yeah, in your excitable state, you just got giddy, didn't you? You didn't realise what you were lashing out at him. And, and, you know, (laughs) everyone feels that way when they meet their heroes. You know, no, you Mm. you need to know what you mean to me. But I Mm. I was just very drunk. And 
Yeah, uh, I've got to say Charlotte Church as well hated me at first and then really loved me afterwards. So it was a great, really nice turnaround. It was, um, <laughs> it, she, she was there with her manager and they went out for a ciggy and without thinking about it, I just, I just, if I hear someone saying I'm going out for a ciggy, I'll be like, yeah, I'll come out too. You know, and so I just said, yeah, I'll come out too. And she looked at me like I was garbage. Uh, and for the whole time I was having a sticky hour, I was texting my mate going, oh my God, she hates me, she hates me. Cause she just, <laughs> um, and then I think my first question was, my dad wants to marry you or something. And then she just, she was ace, she was really nice. Um, right, I, we're struggling for time, lads. Do you want to pick a subject each and then we'll just do one more each? Or how do you uh, want to play it? Because um, I've, one... got, I've got quite an interesting answer to best, question, best country visited. Yes, go for it, mate. Yeah, okay. Best country visited. I was going to say that I was going to, uh, it's not particularly interesting, but I was going to talk about favourite TV show. But uh, yeah, I mean, I'll go with whatever. I, I like that then. So best country visited uh, and favourite TV show. Um, yeah. And I, I, if we've got time, I really want to find out what your hidden talents are as well. So we'll put that. Okay. So um, Ali, your best country visited? I'm going to cheat a bit in this because the best country I've visited is the country I've not visited. Uh, I'll, I'll briefly uh, explain and tell the story. Um, when in uh, September 2019, um, I finally got around to marrying my uh, longtime hmm. partner, Claire, of 25 years. We got married on our 25th anniversary uh, and we put all our wedding presents and so on rather than getting um, um, nodding dogs and silver spoons. We asked the money towards the honeymoon. Um, and we uh, planned a honeymoon in Costa Rica, which is a country that I have read about and dreamed about and, and thought about uh, ever since, the I think, probably early 80s, when I learned that this country in the middle of Central America, surrounded by warfare and all sorts of revolutions and fascist dictators and drug smugglers and everything, had abolished their military in 1948 uh, and constitutionally committed themselves to to human rights and environmental protection. Uh, it's the only country in the world that's got a, a rainforest that's currently expanding rather than shrinking. Really? Um, they've got more than 100% energy, uh, uh, um, renewable energy. So it's all of their electricity is generated from dams and, and uh, hydro, uh, what do you call it, um, warm springs and so on. And they actually export electricity to neighbouring countries on a... Uh, 100% renewables. Um, and all of this was booked for me to finally go to Costa Rica uh, last April. Uh, and of course, three weeks before we were going, the coronavirus outbreak mm. uh, uh, happened. Uh, so having spent the, the about the previous year uh, just what uh, reading catalogues and visiting websites and looking at videos, I felt like I'd been almost living in Costa Rica uh, for about six months at the time it got cancelled. And then I spent the last year, every time I have a, a low moment, I'll just go back and I'll, I'll look at some more photos and articles. And I really do feel like, you know, somewhere in my mind, I've been living in, in this most amazing country. Um, and we've now started planning for uh, Easter 2022, when we may finally actually get our honeymoon. Um, and it <laughs> continues to be the, my, uh, the, the, the country that I obsess over um, and will not rest until I've actually physically been to the country that I feel like I've been living in for about the last two years. It was that was a bit of sweet answer. I mean, it was obviously it's you know it's so sad that you've been denied going, but it's uh, it's nice that you got such a love for a country that you haven't been to. I love that. That's really nice. I wish I did actually, because I, I really struggled with this answer. And I there's places I I want to go to, but I don't feel connected to any other country. Um, yeah. What about well, you, weirdly, if, if it hadn't been if it hadn't been for the nightmares of the last year, I'd probably feel much less strongly connected to it. And, and yes, I just hope yeah. it all doesn't become a bit of an anticlimax. <laughs> I, I can very much imagine Costa Rica to be a beautiful country. So yeah, there's no doubt there. Um, Chris, what's your favourite country you visited? I've been I've been to quite a few places, and when I go to places, I always think I always ask myself if I really like a place, I think yeah, but could you live here? Mm. And and the place of all the places I've been to recently, the one that really blew me away and and did match the hype that people had told me about was Berlin. And I'd wanted to go for a long time. I'd, ne- I'd not been to Germany before, and it was, it was the first time going going to that uh, to, to that to there. And yeah, Berlin just blew me away. Um, the vibe of the city, the culture, the people, and and it, it's a really it, it feels like there was a very determined effort after the war to make Berlin a, a, a much more attractive, welcoming, mm. and liberal 
place. And yeah, I, I was, yeah. And Berlin is one of the places I think, yeah, I could definitely live there. So, you know, of, of, of all the places I've visited over the last 10 years, I'd say Berlin is the one that, that, that really, you know, attracted me and impressed me. Well, funny enough, my best mate, because I'm not a well-traveled man, I've not really been outside of Europe and there's plenty of places I love across Europe, but um my best mate is very well traveled and Berlin is his favorite place in the world. Mm. Um, yeah, so it, it must have something going for it and I'd love to go one day. Um, favorite TV show, Ali? Uh, of the moment, probably Line of Duty, like everybody else. Yes. Um, of all time, I would say probably Breaking Bad or, or possibly uh, Scooby Doo. <laughs> <laughs> love it. Uh, Chris, what about yourself? Um, it's really hard because there's so many great TV programs and, and there's so many that I admire and, and I'd say kind of from history, Hill Street Blues and the and Boys Never and the Blacks. Oh, Hill Street Blues was a game changer, Steve. Yeah. It, it's yeah. An, it probably looks dated now, but in terms of overlapping dialogue and narratives, it was, mm. and that, that and Boys and the Black stuff was a game changer. I think more recently, I've really liked uh, Narcos. Um, and, and what I've watched probably in the last year has been The Juice, which is set in uh, New York, 1970s. Yeah. Ozark has been great. Oh, yeah. But, but uh, Normal People, the adaptation of Sally Potter's novel, was superb as well. But there's so many TV shows now, far more than ever used to be. And, uh, you know, I have a long list that I know I'll take to my grave of series I need to catch up on. So, um, yeah, yeah there, there's so many good, there's so many good ones out, but it's good to go back sometimes. If you look at Hill Street Blues, like I say, it feels dated, but it was an absolute game changer in its time. Well, is that and The Shield, which I've never watched, which are both supposed to be the great cop dramas of kind of American TV in, in uh, the pantheon there. So yeah, I need to watch at least one of them. Um, Shit's Creek for me and Parks and Recreation. Parks and Recreation is just a lovely hug of a television programme. Uh, and the same could be said for Shit's Creek as well. <clears throat> um, just what you need in this kind of lockdown kind of um, time, really. It, it's I think they're both on Netflix. Uh, Succession yeah. is amazing television. Uh, and I've got a real left-wing one here. Because uh, one of the questions I was going to ask you guys was guilty pleasure, and I, I forgot to include it. And my guilty pleasure is also one of my t- favourite TV programmes. And if you know me, you just think, why? Why do you like this programme? I don't know why I love this programme, but Escape to the Country. <laughs> I, always, <laughs> I always watch it. I love it. Um I love how crap it is. I love how bad they are at their job. It's You'll have a couple with like a three quarters of a million pound budget and they'll say, right, we don't care where we are in Hampshire. Anywhere in Hampshire is fine. We're even prepared to go down to Surrey or anything like that. Uh, all we want is a double garage because, you know, the husband likes to potter with like classic cars. And then they'll take him to a house, three quarters of a million pound budget. And they'll be like, oh, here's your house. But unfortunately, the one thing it doesn't have, but it, there, is a, there is a shed in the back garden that you can maybe adapt. They're terrible. Um, Yes, you, you, you know what, Steve? I don't believe in guilty pleasure. I just yes. believe in pleasures. And, and I think that I, I abhor reality programs, but I watched the program called Botched, which, right. is, about these, which is about these two plastic surgeons, I think, in Beverly Hills. Who deal with people. <laughs> I just, it, I, it's, it's just addictive. It's, it's like, I mean, I try to pretend that, that, that it's an examination of the human condition, but it's not. It, it, it's just about watching freaks do damage to themselves. <laughs> yeah, that, that caveat of kind of, you know, oh, I'm looking at this analytically, that, that kind of stopped yeah. around Big Brother 2, didn't it? <laughs> um, Ali, what's your hidden talent? Well, apart from trampolining. Yeah, well, yeah, long forgone. Uh, I, I can play a decent tune on a, on a guitar. I'm, nice. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a semi-competent um uh, acoustic blues guitar player, uh, and that is strictly on. I can't remember whose law it is. There, there's some rule that if you if you dedicate ten thousand hours yes. to anything, yeah. you'll end up quite competent at it. Well, I'm now old enough that I have put in those ten thousand hours, and, and I've got there in the end. Uh, Chris, what's your hidden talent? Uh, it's not so much hidden, but I was fifty last year, and I tried to keep myself fit, and I can still run ten k in forty six minutes. Blimey. Which, yeah, so I work, and because I'm refereeing, I've got to stay fit as well. I can't run 1k in 45. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Fair play. Well, mine's a very silly one, but it's just the first thing that came to mind, so I'm sticking to it. I don't know why I have this ability, (laughs) but when I'm watching Pointless and they'll give an answer, and you know that bar goes down from 100 to (laughs) 1, I will be within one or two of what it is every single time. <laughs> it freaks my wife right out. I, I wish I could... Tra- it's not a transferable skill. I wish it was, but alas, 
it's just going to remain a hidden talent. Um, guys, I really enjoyed that. I thought it was a really enjoyable part. And so thank you very much for joining me today, Ali. It was an absolute pleasure. It was a great fun. Uh, thanks, Chris. Yeah, cheers. It was great. It was like it was like we were sharing a pint uh, in a pub. Exactly. Bottle. It was really exactly. good fun. Yeah. Exactly. That's what it's all about. And thank you very much for listening. For listening in. Um, that's a wrap for today. But before we go, we'd just like to quickly say. If you're struggling right now, there is now light visible at the end of a tunnel. Things will get better very soon and normality will return. No, we're not talking about the pandemic or even a national lockdown. We mean there's only eight more days left of this horrid international break <laughs> and Premier League action <laughs> is on the horizon. In all seriousness, seriously so, stay safe, everyone. Look out for each other and forever up the blues. <laughs>